0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome Welcome to the the Calling calling History history podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Thomas Jefferson. In the last episode, we talked about the interesting life of young Thomas, his choice of professions should he be reincarnated, his hilarious experiences with Benjamin Franklin, and his explanation of how the Declaration of Independence transformed from the document he originally wrote to what it is today. There is so much left to discuss in this episode, including his answers to my questions about Sally Hemings, the slave he likely fathered six children with.
1: Everybody who is listening to this right now and is not traveling, but is actually in their homes listening to this, they're thinking, all right, enough already. When are you going to ask him about Sally Hemmings?" But I'm not going to ask you about that yet. But as you can probably imagine, uh, the world does have some questions about that. But I don't want to ask about that yet. I don't want to ask about that yet. I want to ask you about the back to the independence i want to ask you about the uh, some more that was taken out about slavery i am so confused with this part of your life i don't understand it like you owned so many people over your life and i hope in your time it doesn't sound offensive the way that i'm saying that because i have tremendous respect for everything you've done but you you owned so many people and yet it seemed like over and over you tried to take all these actions to end slavery, and it seemed like you knew that it had to go, and it seemed that you had written in the Declaration that, a part that was taking out that this has got to go. So, I mean, what are your feelings about this? What are your feelings about them taking it out of the Declaration of Independence? Well, first,
2: sir, without question, you have hit upon the question that I, the issue that I look upon with more consternation than any other. I'm Fully aware of the apparent contradiction between my public expressions for personal liberties and my holding these poor people in their condition of servitude, only with difficulty can someone outside of this southern society realize that the change that are in shackling these people are links of avarice and fear and habit ingrained in this culture for over 200 years at this point. And I will speak to this from a personal level. Were I to release these people from my service and truly I say my care, I'm only too aware of the fate that would befall them. They would, if they could survive a journey through the hinterland to seek some form of self-sustaining life, they would enter a more uncertain and dangerous bondage than anything they've known on my own mountain farm. And I'll give you a small example, just so you will have some understanding before we get into the more of the abstract portion of this discussion. A small example of this reality did take place within my own experience. During the end of the war, the revolution, the British General Cornwallis swept through Virginia, destroying farms and freeing slaves, as he called it. And he did the same to my farm when he came, freeing 30 of my workers. Within two years after the revolution was completed, 27 of those people had died of disease and starvation. And I only presume that the other three suffered the same fate. Now, as a younger man, I had hoped that we as a new nation could base our existence upon the endowments of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, as I stated in the declaration, that we would pursue a rational political course to rid ourselves of this practice, which if not removed, will continue to lead to economic weakness and moral reproach in the eyes of the world. I had made three efforts in my Political life to remove this institution from our politics. The first most outstanding was the effort that I put forth in the declaration that you mentioned was removed. The second, one thing that you may or may not be aware of, I had thought, and many of us had thought, that upon the completion of our work at the Second Continental Congress, our work needed to be carried on within these new states, and I thought that it was as if you are planting the seeds, where you plant them and how you plant them, that is how things will grow, if I may use a farming analogy. And I thought returning to what was then at that time called the General Assembly, because of course, the House of Burgesses was no more. We had separated from Great Britain in every fashion. So the House of Burgesses was beginning to form a new constitution for itself. And I was asked to serve on a committee of revisers with Colonel George Mason and Edmund Randolph. I'm trying to think of the other gentleman. I can't remember. I apologize. The habitude of age does interfere with my memory, so I hope you will understand.
1: We're all getting older. In,
2: in any case, sir, I took up a number of subjects in that position. The first was the removal of entail and primogeniture, which was a legal process by which the Virginia plantation families locked up much of the land within our state. The second, was the establishment of religious freedom. The third was an effort to increase the educational opportunities for our people. And the fourth was the possibility of gradual emancipation for the slave population. I will give you an example, sir, particularly on that last matter. I knew that this was going to be a difficult challenge And before I submitted the report to the General Assembly for reading our recommendations from that committee of revisers, I asked probably one of the most respected representatives in our new state, a man by the name of Richard Bland. And Richard Bland was well known among everyone. His interest in the welfare of the state was fully acknowledged by even those who were his political opponents. I have never heard such obligee as he endured when he read this section of my report to the General Assembly. There was no question that our people were not ready at all. They just absolutely refused to consider it. And the way I look at it at this point the hour of emancipation for slaves is advancing with the march of time. You had said, and I don't know whether it was due to your wine or some other libation you may have, but you had said the future is already here. And in any case, it will come upon us. And whether their emancipation will be brought on by a generous energy of the white population or by the bloody processes that have taken place in San Domingo. That's a leaf of our history that I have not yet seen, but I am not optimistic at this point. I will tell you the truth. All I know to say, sir, is as I approach the end of my life and learn of the political path that the 16th Congress just passed three years ago with the approval of the Missouri Compromise, I have lost much of my hope. We currently, have a wolf by the ears, meaning slavery. And we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation on the other. And what will happen, I can't say, sir.
1: Gosh, yeah, it's interesting. I guess the question that comes to mind is that I don't think there's any question that you understand that slavery is wrong and that it is immoral, and it is every bad descriptive word you can think of, it is all of those things, and yet, this is going to sound terribly insulting, and I don't mean it to be, but Mr. Adams felt the same way. John Adams felt the same way, and what he chose to do was not own slaves, and I guess I'm wondering, as a leader of the world, why not take that approach? Why not say, okay, listen, we're not going to solve this, but somebody has to be the leader. And so I'm going to free all of my say, or I'm going to give them the option to be free, or I'm going to pay them, give them the option to be paid. I mean, I know that you're concerned about something happening to them, as you described the 27, but why not give them the option? Sir,
2: you are asking Pyramus, the father of Hector, to take on the armor. I have been in these wars. I am no longer an effective agent in such matters. I have an agenda that in the one thing that I wish to accomplish in the years that remain to me. And at this point, the good that I could do is not in this issue. I could not convince the General Assembly or my fellow planters I could not make any impact. I have the opportunity to make an impact on another topic that we may want to discuss. But if I do that, if I do as you recommended, and I fully understand what Mr. Adams has done, and I understand why, and it makes perfect sense, and I wish I could do such a thing. But were I to do that, I would lose the one goal that I have remaining for service to my state and my nation. And I do not want to sacrifice that for basically a symbol that will mean nothing.
1: What is that thing?
2: That thing, sir, is the University of Virginia.
1: I'd love to hear about this. Before you tell me about the University of Virginia, though, I want to tell you, you'll probably appreciate this because you deserve this. Because, I mean, nobody's life is perfect, that's for sure. But there is one thing one fact about you that when I heard this, I thought it was one of the most interesting things that you accomplished. And I think it's maybe trivial, but I think it's extraordinary. Because if, if politicians now paid attention to this, like the world would be a better place. But in, before I tell you that thing, in generally speaking, we've had a bunch of presidents since since your passing. And you're generally considered, despite some of the very challenging things that you're involved in, you're generally considered in the top 10 about just about everybody. And that is a big thing considering the United States is the most powerful nation in the world. But the thing that you did that I thought was incredible is when you took over government, the national debt I read was at like $83 million. And you cut 40% off of that. Is
2: that true? It is true. I think it was actually 31% was reduced. And I would make acknowledgement to a gentleman who is not well known by the public, but I can assure you they owe him a great deal of gratitude. Is Mr. Albert Gallatin, my Secretary of Treasury, we had this challenge of, as you say, 83 millions of dollars of debt. And being a farmer and understanding debt and the challenges it puts upon any man's operation, I wanted to do whatever I could without jeopardizing the security of the country to allow us to escape this, as some of the Federalists said, public blessing of public debt. We were able to secure the Louisiana purchase at fifteen million of dollars cost to us and still reduce that debt by over 30%. And I attribute at least a portion of that to the efforts and challenges that Mr. Albert Gallatin overcame as my Secretary of
1: Treasury. Politicians have to make laws and they have to make tough decisions. But probably the hardest thing that they have to do is be responsible with money that really isn't theirs. And there haven't been a lot of presidents that were as fiscally responsible as you were trying to leave the future better for those that would come after you. And I just applaud you for that. I think it is, the, it is such a neat thing. I'd love to hear about what you're doing with the University of Virginia, though. I got sidetracked. I apologize.
2: Oh, no. Outstanding. This is a conversation, sir. We're not reading lectures here. Mr. Dean, you have come at a most opportune time today, earlier this spring. Finally, after more machinations that I want to get into, the Virginia General Assembly has authorized that the literary fund, of which they have responsibility for, will make available to the University of Virginia Board of Visitors the monies necessary to begin construction of the final building necessary for completion of this university the rotunda and this rotunda will give the University of Virginia unity and consolidation of form and purpose as a single object and our dominion in my opinion deserves what will remain and be respected and preserved through other ages and construction of the rotunda has actually begun he began last month and I assure you this building and this establishment of a university it has a long history sir and i can tell you that if this bantling of 40 years over 40 years of birth and development can come to fruition and stand upon its own feet i shall sing my nunc dimittis with sincerity and gladness i just
1: i'm very excited about what has happened. Why does this matter so much to you? I mean, if, whether you did this or not, your life is filled with accomplishments. What, is, what about this that stands out about the others?
2: All right, sir. Let's, let us step back a bit in time. I'm going to say, have you heard of the Republic of Greece of Pericles? Have you heard yes. of the Roman Republic?
1: Most definitely.
2: Have you heard of the perplexed Constitution of the United Provinces? And not, the, Helvetic, the Helvetic Republic from Switzerland?
1: Not super familiar with these, but go ahead. They have all failed,
2: sir. Every one of them through history has failed. And when we proceeded with our revolution to break away, what was going to separate us from the oppressors we had lately removed? And what prevents another tyrant from taking their place? According to history, we'll become indistinguishable from them if it were not for our government's purpose and the source of its power. Our government serves but one purpose, to secure for each man his natural rights and is enabled to the task only through the consent of the governed. These are the principles upon which our republic is based. Now, you ask me, why is this university so important? I believe that it is the consent of the governed that is subject to erosion through ignorance and its agents of apathy and fear. Through the debilitating influence of ignorance, our people can lose the capacity to agree upon fundamental needs of this society and create a condition where those with wealth and power can seek their own ends to the detriment of the whole. The influence over our government must be shared among all of our people. If every individual which composes their mass participates in the ultimate authority, the government will be safe. Now, I don't know about your Western territory, sir. I apologize. I should learn more. I was most surprised that you came from Indian territories. But in any case, what I will say, and perhaps you may be unaware, in Virginia, we have between 30 and 40% illiteracy Our people cannot read and cannot write. Now how are they going to form judgments upon this great experiment that we are still attempting? Until they understand and can acquire an education, our republic is, shall we say, under threat. And it will take a vigilant and distrustful superintendence by our people who must be knowledgeable of what occurs. Because if our nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects something that never was and never will be. I won't go into too much detail, sir. I'm getting a bit exercised about this because it it means so much to me. But after I've completed my public responsibilities in the executive office, I have been removed here to Monticello here in Albemarle County for some years. And my nephew, Mr. Peter Carr, and my son-in-law, Mr. Thomas Randolph, Jr., came and asked me to serve on a board of trustees of something called the Albemarle Academy. Now, in the county of Albemarle Academy, for a decade was known for one thing, its non-existence. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody knew it was not going anywhere. Well, I took this opportunity and I said yes I will do it but there were efforts to make it into the kind of school that had spread around among the planters in both the colony and then state of Virginia and I did not want that I wanted to form a school that could be adapted in its first interest and its first being to our slender funds but it would be susceptible to enlargement as we generated validity and credibility among our people and going to one of these small academies was not what I had in mind and I conveyed a very long proposal and it went on to Mr. Joseph Kappel, a representative of ourselves in the General Assembly. And I can tell you that Mr. Kappel along with several others have absolutely done more To foster the existence of this university. And we now have the grounds of our university. We have 10 pavilions available, and they are now going to find a unity of purpose within the building of this rotunda, which essentially, if I may briefly describe it, is a half scale of the Pantheon in Rome. And that shall. I say, gain attention both within and beyond our state.
1: As you're talking about this, gosh, I love the Pantheon, by the way. It's the most beautiful building. As you're talking about this, I am, you know, as people, as we live our lives, we want to pass things on to the people that we care about, whether it's our children or, you know, whatever. And the people that you care about as president are the people of your country. And as I think about your youth and your adulthood, The one thing that you were always surrounded by, your work, by the way, were these books that you're famous for, books on every topic. And my understanding that you read every one of them, many of them lots of times. And I read even once that you used your books to spend time teaching one of the Lewis and Clark duo before they went on their expedition. I mean, these books and this education is everywhere. And your University of Virginia, seems like, was your book's. And it sounds to me like you're trying to pass that on to the world.
2: Well said, sir, because this rotunda of which I have spoken is to be the library of the University of Virginia. And without a library, I do not see how we can become enlightened to others' ideas and to investigation and to find their errors. So to me, the library is the unifying factor behind a university. And I will tell you, sir, that my cohorts, the Board of Visitors, consists of the following people. Our current president, James Monroe, has agreed to serve on this board and actually took part with me when we claimed the land as my foreman said it was a part of what did he call it I forget unusable pasture of not much value (laughs) and we purchased it for fifteen hundreds of dollars from Mr. Perry and then Mr. Madison he is also a board of visitors member as well as Mr. Cabell that I have mentioned and Mr. General John Cock Who established a reputation in uh, our second war with Great Britain, as they say, Mr. Madison's War. In any case, these are the type of gentlemen who are helping me establish a university and it is now coming to pass. May I digress a little bit? I don't mean to get into anything that would be delicate for your sensibilities but may I offer you a bit of a controversy?
1: Yes, please do.
2: Well, once we purchased the land and gained enough funding from the literary fund from the General Assembly to begin, we ran into a political obstacle that was quite formidable. I'm not sure how to say this delicately. I I hope I offer you no offense, sir, but are you
1: Presbyterian? Well, whether I was or I wasn't, considering where we are in our glasses of wine, it doesn't matter anymore. You're not going to offend anybody. <laughs> so go ahead.
2: Well, well, I can tell you that we ran into some serious political objections from the Presbyterians. And they were primarily from what we call the Valley of Virginia. And they had united themselves with the Anglicans in in the... Hampton Roads area, which is in the Tidewater, Williamsburg, and so forth. And they began to oppose the prospect of a university because I wanted it separate from the church. It goes back to something that perhaps we can discuss, a separation of church and state, which is something in which I have some strong opinions. And they were doing their best to cut off the funding from the General Assembly's members and Reverend John Rice, he was so intense about what he was able to convince the General Assembly, he thought that the state of Virginia should fund essentially a seminary for the Protestant faiths. And if this was what essentially was going to happen, it would make the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom an immersement. And I could not tolerate such a thing. And I finally was able to convince Governor Wilson Nicholas through what we call the Rockfish Gap Report that this could not be associated with a religious sect. And we went forward and finally we got designation as a university for Virginia, and as I stated, the General Assembly has allowed us to complete the buildings, and once we complete the rotunda, I am looking forward to young gentlemen both from Virginia and from the other states to come and sup the cup of knowledge with us.
1: This is such a great project. i got to tell you, when you're talking about these purchases and you're saying we purchased this piece of land for $1,500, in our time, that glass of wine would cost almost $1,500. I mean, (laughs) you, you can't even compare our money to your money. And I think about one of your, probably one of your greatest purchases of all time, and that would be the Louisiana purchase. You mentioned that a couple minutes ago. How much did you spend on that huge chunk of land that, Doubled the size of our country,
2: that was fifteen millions of dollars, sir
1: and at the time this is there's several things I wanted to ask you about this, first of all, it seems that in your earlier career, maybe before president, that you had some strong feelings that maybe the government didn 't have the power to make this the decision in the way that you made to purchase that, although I think it was a great decision. And yet, once you had power, it was clear to you that decision had to be made. Do you feel like you were on both sides of that argument at different times?
2: Well, without question, I had the reservations that you mentioned. And as things went about, I will give great credit to both Mr. Madison, who was my Secretary of State, and Mr. Gallatin, Secretary of Treasury, that the reservations I had while they did have substance to them from a constitutional basis, they could jeopardize us for a very logical reason, and we'd already run into the conflict. I I will just briefly mention to you, before I get into it, can you locate for me, I understand you're in the Western Territory, can you locate for me any landmarks that would mark your village of where you live. I don't know enough. I never went west of Hot Springs, Virginia myself. So I, although I had a fascination with the west, I, I really know very little about its geography other than the maps of Hennepin and Praz and Cox. So tell me, where is your home?
1: Well, my home, it would be described, in, if you looked at the entire size of the United States right now, my home is literally right in the center of it. And the center of it would be about the equivalent of if you were to add another Louisiana purchase to the West. So if you all were right. to Goodness. extend the land, if you had another $15 million and you're like, hey, I think I'll buy that too, right? And then you put that all together and pointed to the dead center of all of that. That's where I am right now.
2: I'm not sure the Spanish crown would appreciate that, sir. In any case. Would there be a landmark that I would know about a river, a mountain, any, anything that would mark where you are?
1: We're actually really
2: close to the Missouri River. I think that you can look at it in this term. You are an agricultural location. You are growing crops and presumably livestock of various kinds that I'm not familiar with, and they have to be taken to market. Well, you're not going to take them to market over the Appalachians, sir. So they're going to have to come down through the Missouri and down through the Mississippi. Now, where do they have to go out? Where does this funnel, where does the end of this funnel take place? The ocean? But you have to go through a, one particular port of great significance. And what is that? It is called New Orleans. Ah. And without New Orleans, All of this acquisition means nothing. Now, let me offer you a little context so you understand why the purchase was so important and why I made the decision I did in spite of some constitutional reservations. The purchase honestly begins, and this may sound strange to you, sir, it begins in a small village in Italy called Merangu. And I'm sure you've never heard of that.
1: No, I have not. At the
2: village of Marangu, a Frenchman by the name of Bonaparte acquires a victory over the Austrians. And when he does that, he then acquires legitimacy in the eyes of the French people and a military dominance over large sections of Europe start to happen. And in this, he imposes his will upon the Spanish, and it was at that point that this, what they call the Treaty of St. Ildefonso, I believe that's how you pronounce it, the Spanish essentially grant what had been called the Louisiana Territory over to the Spanish. And now what most people may not understand is why would the French now with their energies and their um, restlessness, why would the French be a threat to Americans? They were our allies during the revolution. Well, as the place where all of our Western agricultural trade takes place, they could acquire great wealth. And Monsieur Bonaparte, who later becomes emperor, fully acknowledges this. And he goes after it. But there's a problem. There's a problem called the British Navy. And the British Navy are imposing their will on the Caribbean Sea. So what he has to do to get to New Orleans is he has to establish some sort of naval port that can protect the French Navy from the British Navy. And where does he do this? but in San Domingo, the French colony that was notorious for many things. And how does he secure San Domingo? Because there had been a French or a slave re- revolution led by Toussaint L'Ouverture. He sends his brother-in-law, General Leclerc, to defeat the slave revolution and reimpose French authority. What happened? They die in the effort of disease and malaria, and they were unsuccessful. And it was due to this slave revolt and the leadership of Toussaint L'Ouverture that Napoleon says, I cannot secure New Orleans from the British. I think I will make the best I can out of this loss and make some funding because I want to go back to war with the British
1: so that's he why offers he to it. Sell it
2: that's why he wanted to sell it and this is all going on unknown to myself and to my administration this is going on to my minister in France Mr. Robert Livingston Chancellor Livingston and I had knew that things were taking place so I was sending then Colonel James Monroe to assist him and there he walks in and they have an offer from Napoleon to purchase the entire Louisiana territories. And I had given him authorization that he had to secure the debts that the French owed us through their quasi-war as Mr. Adams' administration had to deal with and we had to secure the port of New Orleans. Those were the main points. And once Chancellor Livingston and Colonel Monroe heard the terms, they went ahead. They did not want to jeopardize this offer. And they sent me recognition immediately, but of course I didn't hear about it for six weeks after the offer had been made. So I went forward, and when I learned about it, I told the Congress about it, and due to the counseling of Mr. Madison and Mr. Gallatin, we went forward.
1: How could you not?
2: I felt that way. How could I not? Yeah. Gosh. Now, on the 10th day of Floreal, the new French calendar under their emperor, April 30th of 1803, they signed the treaty selling to the United States the or province of Louisiana to the same extent that it has now in the hands of Spain and that it did when the French previously had possessed it. And we didn't even know what the size was.
1: You, you really didn't know how much land there was?
2: No, sir. We did not know where the Stony Mountains actually were. Oh they now call them
1: the Rockies. Jeez, that is <laughs> truly me... amazing.
2: Now, I must tell you that the high Federalists, who were my political opponents, were incensed. Let me read you. I wanted to quote what we call the Essex Junto. These were the high Federalists. When they learned of this treaty, the treaty was actually announced and the agreement of Congress to purchase this was still being debated. And in one of the New England papers, this was what was written, and I am quoting, sir.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> we are to give money of which we have too little or land of which we already have too much. This unexplored empire of the size of four or five European kingdoms is a great waste, a wilderness unpeopled with any beings except wolves and wandering Indians.
1: <laughs> my, my all right let me throw a piece of irony at you here when you go back to when you and hamilton were arguing about whether or not there was going to be a national bank or not whether or not you're going to assume state's debts and all of that and you were very much against that from my understanding and yet as you look back at it you probably feel now that you were wrong because had that not happened then you wouldn't have been able to make this fantastic purchase that these guys are now wrong about. I mean, politics is a freaking nightmare. You are
2: hoisting me upon the sword of a dilemma, sir. Absolutely correct. I did gather with Mr. Madison and then Colonel, now the late General Hamilton, in New York and to discuss the issue of assumption of debts of the state. All that you say is true. I cannot turn back the clock. I don't know what I would do were I to be in the same position, but now looking back upon it, I have to concur with you. We never would have been the nation we are at this point in 1823 if that assumption had not taken place, and that was not an easy decision for me.
1: Well, if we were all just perfect, we wouldn't make any of these mistakes.
2: I will say I just quoted someone from the Essex Junto, but now I want to quote something that was written to me by my friend, Dr. Casper Wispar from Massachusetts, and he said it best. He said, and this was several months right after the announcement that we'd made the purchase. He said, I congratulate you on the very happy acquisition you have made for our country. Although no one here appears to know the extent or price of the session, it is generally considered as the most important and beneficial transaction which has occurred since the Declaration of Independence and next to it most likely to influence or regulate the destinies of our country.
1: Gosh, that's amazing. You just had to be not even know how to react, how to contain your enthusiasm when you realize this was going to happen. But I'm... I also know that you're a smart man and as an intellectual you could probably see the pieces on the chessboard and see that there was going to be an Indian problem once this happened. What were your thoughts on that? Without question
2: the depredations between the white and the red races has continually injured both sides and I know from what little I understand if you are your home is near the Missouri you are already familiar with the Poncas and the Otas and the Pawnees. So you are fully familiar with the conflicts that are ongoing. I've had some reports back from a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Zebelon Pike. He's no longer with us, but Lieutenant Pike brought back more painful information, and our history is filled with this conflict. All I can say, sir, is there is no question that our Aboriginal neighbors are not in a position to cease the influx of the white population, no matter what they do. As our history has proven throughout our existence already in our colonial status, and now as the United States, we have continued to have conflict with the Indian tribes at Mm -hmm. all stages, and regardless of what steps they take to defend themselves, unless they are assimilated to a degree into an agricultural status, they are going to be in a position of loss constantly and while this is not a moral position we should take the reality of it it is going to take place of that much i can tell it is not something that i want it is a degree of depredations upon the red race that i very much regret but it cannot be stopped and if we can gain their understanding of more agricultural ways and establish the justice of their position, that would be most important. I don't know if you have ever heard of something called the Notes on the State of Virginia, but in a book that, that I wrote, and in this Notes of the State of Virginia is probably the finest oration I have ever read. I did not hear it, but friends of mine did. And it is spoken by a Shawnee chief by the name of Logan. And it is called Logan's Speech. And I would recommend it to you to read from the state, the notes on the state of Virginia. And he states as well as he can the fate of the red races. And I just, I wish I could extend a degree of peace to them that I have not been able to do.
1: It's interesting to me how practical you are about some of these very difficult decisions because now I'm counting at least two of them that are impossible decisions. And the thing is, something has to be done about them that is more fair than is happening. But there's no way to do it because I agree when you're talking about slavery and trying to deal with slavery around the time of the signing of the Declaration, there's no way you would have pulled the states together if you had pushed that issue. It had to be solved, and yet it couldn't. And I think that's what you're saying with the Indian tribes that are in the middle of what the United States is right now to your west. And that is it had to be solved. It wasn't fair, but there was no stopping this westward expansion. I can see what you're saying. Yes you'd like to fix it, but there was no solution to it because it was going to happen. I mean is that right? You have the streak of the philosopher in you, sir? Well, thank you very much. I spend time with very smart people, so i've got a few more <laughs> questions i've got a few more questions for you, and I am gosh, i just I promise you one thing: I would wear you out before you would wear me out with these questions <laughs> i well i'm almost finished my second glass of wine, sir. <laughs> you might as we get into this next part, you might want to drink straight from the bottle. <laughs> so in our time, there is you, – you, we had talked about – at the very beginning of this, we talked about the natural world quite a, quite a bit. and You had used the term natural philosopher. And I think in our time, a natural philosopher would be called a scientist, I believe. I think that is the term. And yeah. the, the scientists of our time, they can do things that you can't even – you couldn't even imagine. Not if you had your most intelligent thought. You just couldn't. And one of the things that we know – is that you had physical relations with Sally Hemings and had children with her. Science has already proven that. We know that is the case. And also that there were several children. And I, it's really confusing in our time because it's, you seem like such a moral, principled man, and it's confusing to have those kind of relationships with a person that you own it almost seems like a teacher and a student relationship, almost like it might be inappropriate. And I, please take no offense, but I'd love to hear what you have to say on this. Well, sir,
2: if our circumstances were reversed, and I to be a visitor in your home, and I'd pose a question of such obvious and malicious purpose, would you be a gentleman if you were even to deign to respond. That is the best I can say, sir.
1: That, is, that That is a fair response. And yet, in our time, this is one of the most debated topics about your life. I mean, geez, nobody's forgetting all the wonderful things that you have done for sure. But are there any other comments that you'd be willing to make on that?
2: This issue has gone on since Mr. Callender's writings during the early stages of my presidency, and I won't get into the details of what was occurring. I will say that it offers a distraction from the much broader questions that threaten the liberty of this nation. We had a brief discussion on slavery earlier, but by distracting upon my circumstances as is viewed by the public, you also don't have to deal with the much broader context. And in some cases, I fear that the liberties of this nation can be threatened once we have violated the Almighty's purpose for us, that we should have and be able to govern ourselves. And if he has given us this liberty and we violate it by the institution of slavery, once this conflict comes to pass, he would take no side with the slaveholders of which I am one. And I do fear and tremble for the future of our country in this matter. And as I've said before, All I can do is say that the generation of 1776 has given their best contributions that we were able to do, and it will be up to the future generations to make corrections as best they can with as little blood as will be spilt and to take advantage of what their generation of fathers has given them, and to leave for their own sons and daughters the blessings that we tried to bestow upon them. Does that make any sense, sir?
1: It makes complete sense. The other thing that makes sense to me is I keep hearing you, uh, this, what you just said a second ago about if I came into your house and asked you that question, what would your reaction be? And all I can think about is that's how duels are started. <laughs> you know, somebody asking a question like that, you are absolutely right. All right, let me ask you one more. You remember when you were negotiating with Mr. Hamilton and you guys were trying to settle your dispute about the banks and so forth, and there was a time where you had a discussion and then you basically decided that, okay, one thing was going to go his way, but the thing that was going to go your way is that you were going to move the capital. You remember this, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. So there was another time when you were in long before that where you were the Virginia governor, and you were having some negotiation, and part of the negotiation was that you were going to move the capital from Williamsburg to Richmond, which was more convenient for you. Is that correct? Well, it was not just a matter of convenience, sir. The state of
2: Virginia goes to the Ohio River, and to place the capital in Williamsburg, how would I represent the people along the Ohio if I'm along the Ohio and I have to get to Williamsburg that is impossible I was able to convince the representatives that the majority of the population had moved west and while we were not heavily populated in the Appalachian chain to the east of the Appalachian chain as I had mentioned earlier the Shenandoah Valley the population had greatly increased so the moving of the capital both from a population standpoint, and from an avoidance of the British forces, seemed to be absolutely necessary. And in addition, that was the point of the falls of the James River. In -hmm. other words, the merchandise and the marketing of the agricultural goods, if they could be collected and secured at the James River, at Richmond where the falls are, they could proceed from that point down to the Hampton Roads, and out across the world. And that is, in fact, what has happened.
1: Yeah, that makes now, a lot of sense, because as I was thinking about that, as I was wondering the reason for that, because the moving of capitals, geez, you don't hear about people moving the capitals a lot. The capital is where the capital is. And I was wondering, as I was reading about that, if when it came time to, for Hamilton to get his way, if he had maybe done his homework on you and realized, hey, this moving of the capital things is something he's done before, maybe for convenience, and maybe we could work that into the negotiations now, but it doesn't sound like that was the case.
2: Well, I'm going to leave you with one story. I will only tell one story concerning my relationship with Colonel Hamilton. President Washington had asked all of his administration, Mr. Randolph, who was attorney general, Colonel Hamilton, who was not yet appointed general until later, and myself as Secretary of State, gather, and Henry Knox, Secretary of War. And we had finished whatever the particular issue was. I think we were dealing with the neutrality issues. And after dinner, we had adjourned to our, uh, our pipes and brandy, mm-hmm. and I think it was, mr. Randolph I can't remember exactly and mr. Randolph said gentlemen we have finished business and we enjoy each other's company now I'd like to find out who are the members of history that have the most influence on the way you look at the world and I can't honestly remember what President Washington said nor mr. Randolph himself but when they came to me I said well actually I have three people that I most admire, and have been of great influence to me. And that is Francis Bacon, Sir Isaac Newton, and John Locke. These are my triumvirs of enlightenment. And when they went to the colonel, he said, Yes, I've heard of those people. But no, they are not my favorite figures of history. There's only one figure of history that I most admired. And all of us leaned forward. And he said, Julius
1: Caesar. Really? Does that offer some inclination, <laughs> sir? That's not shocking at all. <laughs> that is exa- Now that you know the answer, that's exactly what you'd expect him to say. <laughs> Gosh. Okay, I have two more questions for you. One's really quick, and then I'd love to hear anything you'd like to add after that. Okay, now I'm going to ask you this next question, and I, wa- I would like you, if you don't mind, I want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind, but just a very quick description because on one of these discussions we had a conversation we talked about this in detail but I'd like to hear your first reaction of how you would describe briefly Aaron Burr.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Colonel Burr was a man who would offer whatever face he felt his audience would like to see and he was very adept at it. I realized this when I nominated him for my vice president. But I felt from a political standpoint, his influence in New York could not be changed, and would had to be recognized. And as you have mentioned, politics requires a few decisions to be made. I made that decision. And then later, <laughs> as you probably well know, he was indicted for murder in New Jersey. Yeah. And to have a vice president indicted for something was not my idea of how my administration should be remembered. And he took off into the western territories and attempted to gather support for breaking away New Orleans at this time. This was all before the purchase. Right. He wanted to sit upon the throne of Montezuma, apparently. I, that is the
1: best I can say, sir. That's what he, that's what he I, told me when I spoke with him, and he said the two of you did not get along very well at all. That's for sure.
2: You are correct.
1: So my last question, and before I ask this, I want you to know I'm just – and anything you want to add at the end of this, please, but just thank you so much for your time. There's a reason that you're in the top presidents. You did so much good for our country, and a lot of it didn't pay off until later, and I just – I'm so thankful for everything that you did. My last question is, how do you view your own legacy, and what do you think people will debate about you in the future?
2: As to my legacy, sir, I – The contributions I have made, I will list them upon my funerary monument. I am not so concerned as to how others shall look upon me. I am more concerned as to the degree of utilization that the future will make of the gifts that both myself and my contemporaries have made to the future generations because every generation passes, and the passions of every generation cannot be conveyed to the next. But I am hopeful, even under the conditions we have talked about earlier, I am hopeful that there will be a degree of rationality that will understand that self-government is a challenge. It has been throughout history. And can our people meet this challenge If I may, I'm going to recall a small incident that took place. It had to do, you remember I talked about the committee of revisers that Mm -hmm. I was on, and I had submitted an application and information about a possibility of diffusing education among our people. And I remember one of the older members, a very prominent planter, a very wealthy man, He angrily stood up when I said that the public should be responsible for educating the young. He was furious. He said, (laughs) only the parents and the churches have this responsibility. The state has no business educating. And he said, and I remember, I'm quoting him as, as well as I can remember. He said, if we wish to pursue our profligate ways to engender happiness in the mob, We'd be wiser to issue incendiaries directly and save everyone the effort and expense. Would that he and the others who share his fear of the people have the prescience to see that the people alone can protect us against tyranny and that the taxes that would be paid for this purpose are not more than a thousandth the part that would be paid to kings and nobles who could rise up among us and leave us as a people in ignorance. And it is only in a condition of ignorance that this rich land could succumb to a dictates of a foreign nation or to an internal tyrant. For our security and our freedoms rest only upon the sense and judgment of our people. That is the best I have to say, sir.
1: That is fantastic. Your feelings are so clear from what you wrote in the Declaration of Independence, and I can just feel those words in it. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: No, sir. I have very much enjoyed our conversation. I am now tiring, and (laughs) I hope that when you return to your little village upon the Missouri, that you will be able to tell your fellows what you have learned and that it perhaps could be of value to themselves.
1: Most definitely. Thank you again for everything and
0: thank you for your time. Thomas Jefferson was passionate about the University of Virginia. He knows all the good it will do for future generations, and yet there are many that wonder if a man that takes on such a project is doing it to make up for the errors or regrets of his past. Yet, I don't think that is the case. I think Jefferson really does care about all people. I think he may have thought more deeply about this issue than most, yet the system was broken and in his lifetime, he could see no possible way to get slavery under control. Very much like there being no way to stop westward expansion that would wipe the Native Americans from their homeland after the Louisiana Purchase had taken place. Unable to chart a clear path that would prevent these tragedies, he might have just been choosing to do the best he could with what he had. His inappropriate treatment of Sally Hemings, though, is a different thing altogether. There's no question that this was wrong. It is a clear reminder, though, that despite his brilliance on the political landscape and his ability to grow and shape our nation, he was still a flawed human being capable of making egregious mistakes. Thank you for listening and telling your friends about the Calling History podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.